There is a day coming when all of us will stand before God to give an account for our life. What will that day be like? We're going to be talking about that today from Romans chapter 2. I'd like to read for you this passage of Scripture from verses 1 to 16. Paul writes, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what He has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. And this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these things this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts, our minds to consider um, the truth of this passage, to think about it soberly in terms of what it means for each one of us, and to think about how important this is to the gospel itself, that we understand our sin, because we will never see our need for a Savior until we see our sin and guilt before a holy God. Amen. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, Paul tells us that there are two great witnesses in this world around us that point to the existence of God. One of those is creation itself, which we saw last week as we looked at Romans chapter 1, especially verse 20. And God's handiwork is everywhere. It can be seen in the natural world around us. And it points to the fact that there is a creator, a designer, if you will. The order and design that we see point to His eternal power and His divine nature so that men are without excuse. And there is another witness in this world and it is called the moral law or we could also call it the law of the heart. It is this truth that God has placed within the heart of every person 
this understanding that there is a sense of right and wrong, a sense of justice and fairness. And you see that very early on in a person's life. You can hear it in the way children argue with one another when they say things like, you know, that's not fair, or that's mine, or mom, she's cheating, or he's cheating. They have this understanding of what is right and wrong, a sense of fairness that is there from birth. Adults do the very same thing when we argue too. We appeal to some sense of fairness or justice and we either accuse or justify our own actions or behavior or those of others based upon this sense of right and wrong that is within us. Now that sense of right and wrong can be hardened by our own sin and it can be sharpened by the Word of God as we understand more clearly what God expects of us. But it is there. And this moral law, which is universally recognized, is one of the hardest things for the atheist or the evolutionist to explain. Where did it come from? I mean, if we are purely material beings, made of just atoms and molecules that somehow randomly came together, then where did this sense of moral law come from? Why do we even think about such things? Where did our conscience come from? Or even our soul? For the Christian, it's easy to answer those questions. It was put there by God Himself. We were made that way because man is made in the image of God. And so we have that kind of discernment and ability to make choices and to discern between those things that are good or evil, right or wrong, truth or falsehood. We were made in the image of our Creator. And what Paul wants to tell us in this passage are some things that are very important about this moral law, the law of the heart. He begins by telling us in the first section of Romans 2 that we have failed to keep it. We have failed to keep the moral law. And the person that Paul is addressing here is this moral man or woman the kind of person who would listen to what Paul said in chapter 1 and they'd basically agree with him. You know what Paul's talking about in chapter 1? You know, yeah, you know. Paul, I understand that there are some really bad people in our world. There are those that are criminals. There are those who are sexually perverted. There are those who are doing all kinds of wicked things in our world. Paul, you're right. It's really evil out there. But I'm not like them. And so the moral person looks at his own life in contrast to those around him and he kind of judges himself based on that and comes to the conclusion that, you know, I'm not so bad. I'm a pretty good person. And I'm sure that as Paul was preaching the gospel and traveling as he did, he ran into people just like that. People whom we also know in our world. People who are good, moral people. And you can see that in their lives. But is that good enough? Is that what God is looking for in our life? The Jews in particular were like that. When Paul spoke about the sins of the Gentiles and that they were sinners, I'm sure the Jews were just heartily agreeing with Paul, go get them, you know, (laughs) go preach it. You know what you're doing here. But me, again, I'm a pretty good person. In fact, the Jews in Paul's day thought that they would not be judged by God because they had God's law. They were God's chosen people, and so they sort of assumed that there would be a pass here. 
that they would get by. And Paul addresses that question later in chapter 2 in verses 17 and follow. And we'll talk about that next week. You see, Paul's point here is very valid and very appropriate for us to think about. How do we help the moral person, the person who thinks that he's doing pretty good, to see that we are all sinners and we need a Savior? That even those who think that they're doing okay have sinned against God and need a Savior. Paul does it. Paul reveals their sin by pointing to the moral law and our failure to keep it. You know, there's a sense in which we are all hypocrites. We do the very same things that we condemn others for. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 1. That you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the very same things. Let me give you an example. Let's take driving as an example. When I'm driving, one of the things that I really don't like is when somebody pulls out right in front of me and kind of cuts me off in traffic. And uh, when we lived out of Massachusetts, it was really bad. And I know part of it was the shock for me and that I had grown up in the northwest part of Minnesota where there was very little traffic. There were times when you could come to an intersection, look both ways for miles because it's so flat and not see anybody. And so you could just pull out and it was no problem. When we moved to Massachusetts, there was a lot more traffic, and I had to get used to this fact that as you're cruising along, people would just cut you off and just pull right out. So much so that we called it a Massachusetts move. And in fact, one time when we were driving in Vermont, Gail and I, we were there, and it was kind of a rural area, not much traffic, and there was this car at an intersection way ahead, and he was just kind of waiting there waiting there and waiting there and then when we got real close to him sure enough he pulled out right in front of us and took off and I said to Gail you know I bet that guy's from Massachusetts and when we got close enough to see his license plate you know what he was well if I'm honest with myself I have to actually admit that once or twice I've cut in front of somebody too in fact, you know, when I've done it, well, of course, it's, it's always been purely accidental. I mean, either I didn't see the guy or I was in a hurry. Or, you know, this intersection up here at the Dairy Queen and Highway 8, it's really bad. And if you, if you are not aggressive there to get out, you're going to wait there all day. And so there's sometimes when you just have to jump out. Now, what have I done there? I've excused my own behavior. I've justified it because of reasons or things that were going on in my life. And aren't we like that? We are much more charitable with ourselves than we are with others. We see somebody else make a move that we don't like when we're driving and we uh, point that out right away. But if we do it, we kind of forgive ourselves and let it go. We do that in a whole range of things. And if Paul were speaking to us, he'd say, you know, you who condemn others for speeding, do you ever speed? Or you who condemn others for lying, do you ever lie? Or you who condemn others for being critical, are you ever critical or judgmental? And if we're honest about ourselves, we'd have to say, yes, there are times when we have done that too. In fact, if God were to judge us by our own standards, let alone His standards, 
we'd all fall short. There was a story I heard a few years ago, too, about a woman who was waiting at the airport to get on her flight. And she had brought with a book because you never know sometimes how long the wait's going to be. And at the snack bar there, she had picked up a bag of cookies and she sat down and she was going to enjoy her book and her cookies. She placed them on the seat between her, or so she thought, and there was a man sitting a seat over from her. And um, as she started to read her book, this guy picked up the cookies, tore the package open, and began to eat one of them. And she looked at him, and she was just stunned. I mean, she didn't know what to say. And so rather than saying anything, she reached over and she took a cookie herself. (laughs) And then the guy looked at her and He was kind of puzzled. He reached down. He took another cookie. She wasn't going to let this pass, so she took a cookie. And it went back and forth until the guy finally got to the last cookie. And he broke it in half, and he set it down, and then he walked away. And she was really miffed by this whole thing. I mean, she couldn't believe the audacity of this man who would eat her cookies. Then the call came to board the plane, and she gets on the plane, and she takes her seat. And uh, she needed a Kleenex or a tissue, so she reaches into her purse, and then she realized that she shouldn't have been so quick to judge because there in her purse was the still unopened bag of cookies that she had bought. There are times when we do things like that, don't we? That we are critical of others for something that we have done ourselves, or we just didn't have all of the information. And that's what Paul is trying to point out here, that all of us have sinned, even the moral person who thinks that he's pretty good or if God were grading on a curve, you know, maybe he's just a little bit better than average and he's okay. The truth is that all of us have sinned. What he tells us secondly in this passage is that God's judgment will be according to the light that we have received. Now this is interesting because as he talks about it, and you think about the light that people have received, some people have or all of us have the witness of creation we have the witness of the moral law but in the history of mankind some people lived before the law the old testament law was given some people lived in that old testament era that heard god's law and the promise of a messiah who was to come some people live in the new testament era like we do have heard about jesus but even today there are many who have never heard the name of jesus and so people sometimes wrestle with that like that doesn't seem fair how is God going to judge them I mean if the way of salvation is only through Jesus Christ and it is then how does God look at all of those other people in all of those other times and what Paul is saying that each one will be judged according to the light that they have received that God's judgment is just and there will be no excuse There's no excuse for the person who says, I don't believe that there's a creator because the evidence for God as creator is all around us in the world. The person who says, I didn't know what God expected or what was right or wrong really will have no excuse because of this law of the heart, the moral law that is there that either defends or accuses them. We have failed to keep it. And so again, all have sinned. There are those who lived under the Old Testament law that heard the truth of what God expected. It pointed them toward a Savior, a Messiah. How did they respond to that light? And in the same way, how do people respond to the light that they have received today? I believe that those who live in other countries that have never heard about Jesus, if they respond to the light that they have and they turn and they seek God, that God will bring to them the truth, the way of salvation. 
And we hear stories about that even in our world today, whether it is the Inuit Indians in uh, northern Canada or whether it is the tribes in Africa or Muslim nations today where people are having visions and dreams about Jesus. There are many different ways that God can do that. There is only one way of salvation. It is through Jesus Christ. But each one will be judged according to the light that they have received. And what Paul tells us here is that God's judgment is based on truth in verse 2. He says, We know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. With God, all of the facts are known perfectly and fully, even the secrets of men's hearts. It tells us in the scripture in Hebrews 4.13 that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is an open book. He sees it all. And that's that's amazing. It's not just our actions. It's our attitudes. It's our thought. It's the secrets of the heart that God also sees. And it's all laid out there. He tells us also that God's judgment is inescapable in verse 3. When he says that, so you, a mere man, when you pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? He's kind of sneaking up here upon his audience by talking about these things. He's saying, you know, that you have passed judgment on others, and now do you think somehow you're going to get by? That it's okay and you're going to escape this judgment? No. There's no free pass. Nobody gets to skip this part. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul said that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. All of us are going to have that day when we stand before the Lord, even the believer. The difference for the believer is that it is not about eternal life or eternal death at that point. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, John tells us that we have passed from death to life. We have crossed over in that sense, but there is a day coming when there will be for the believer, in a sense, that fruit inspection. That God will look at our life to see how we use the time and the talents and gifts that we had been given. Did we use them to honor God? Did we use them to serve Him and advance His kingdom? Or was it purely living for ourselves? As a believer, we just can't do that. We are called to live in a way that honors Christ in everything that we do. And on that day when we stand before God, it will all be perfectly known. It will all come out, even the motives of the heart. And God will reveal to us even whether we did things that were good things just out of self-promotion so that others could see us and think that we were a really good person or whether we did that genuinely because we loved God and we cared about His people. Even the secret things are going to be known. The prayers that have been offered in secret, the prayers for the salvation of someone you love, the prayers for the nations to come to know Christ, the times that you gave and served, not thinking of yourself, but it was the most natural response because God had changed your heart. And you truly cared about people, and you cared about the least of these in our world. And so you did things, not looking to get some kind of reward or benefit yourself, but you did it because you understood God's grace. And if God had forgiven you and saved you, how could you not? 
help others. And if God had given His very own Son for your salvation and Jesus laid down His life for you, how can you do anything less but serve Him? You see, God will know all of that and He will reveal those things and each one will be rewarded according to what they have done. That's point number four. God's judgment is according to our works. In verse 6, he says that God will give to each one according to what they have done, whether good or bad. Paul is not saying that we are saved by works here. What Paul is saying is that the way we live is the clearest proof of what we believe. And it will be evident for everybody else. If we really love God, we'll worship Him. We're not going to come to church because somebody says you have to go to church. We come to church because we love God. And we want to lift Him up in our praises. And we enjoy being with God's people. If we really love God, then we're going to care about others. And we're going to love our neighbor. We're going to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And where we struggle with that, and maybe there are certain people that are more difficult for us than others, we're going to ask God to help us. And we're going to ask Him to forgive us for our sins, and our pride, and our self-centeredness, and our critical spirits. Because that's what love does. And that's what true faith is all about. Another way of saying this is to say that we are saved by faith alone but not by a faith that is alone. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's His work on the cross, His payment for our sins that has accomplished our salvation. It's not anything that we could do that earns that or merits that. But a faith that doesn't result in a changed life is not a true faith. If we really have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and Christ now lives in us, the fruit of that will be shown in the way that we live. That's what the Holy Spirit came to do, and that's why as we grow in Christ, we see more of His love and His patience and His kindness, His joy, all of those things that the Holy Spirit came to produce should show in us in increasing measure. That's what Paul is talking about here. He tells us, fifthly, that God's judgment is impartial. There will be no favoritism. He tells us, for example, in verse 11, that God does not show favoritism. He will, he will judge those, whether it's Jew or Gentile, those who have heard about Christ, those who have not. He's going to judge each one according to what they have heard and understood in the way that they have lived. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? I mean, think about that. Can you imagine a courtroom where all of the facts are known, where there's no hearsay, there's no second-hand testimony, there's no conflicting testimony where one says one thing and somebody else says something different? It is just the truth. It's exactly what happened. It's a courtroom where the judge has no bias, he is perfectly impartial, infallible, and all-wise. Verdicts are rendered swiftly, and punishment is carried out without delay. That's what it will be like when we stand before Christ. But here's the sobering part. That the penalty for breaking God's moral law is death. 
And we see that again in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. When he tells us that all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. It doesn't matter then whether a person was a Jew or a Gentile, whether they had the Old Testament law or they didn't have that, whether today someone has heard about Christ or not heard about Christ. All who sin will die. The wages or the penalty for sin is death. And it is not hearing the law that matters. It is obeying the law that counts. And all people in our world have at the very minimum the witness of creation and this law of the heart that tells them something about this God who made us in His image. But what Paul is stressing here is that when we look at sin from God's point of view, we all fall short. The pagan that Paul talks about in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, the moral person that he's talking about here in chapter 2, and even the religious person that he'll talk about later in chapter 2, verses 17 into chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all of us need a Savior. This is the gospel. That's what struck me as I was reading through this section. When he talks about God's judgment, how does he end this section in verse 16? He says that this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. The scripture tells us that on that day it is Jesus Christ who will be the judge before whom we come. And God has given all authority and judgment to the Son. And He's the one that we will come before. And either on that day our sins will have been forgiven because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, or we will be held accountable for our sins. This is the Gospel. And anything that leaves this out, the truth about sin and about God's judgment to come is not the gospel. It is simply a man-made belief. I want to comment today and just briefly because of the time about a book that is quite popular at this point and a book that I recently read. It's called The Shack. And I'm sure some of you have probably read The Shack. It's been... uh, you know, made available and promoted. It's a bestseller in a lot of bookstores. They have it out. About 4 million copies or more have been sold already as people have read it. I read it this weekend. It's interesting the timing of that as I was reading through the shack and I was thinking about these passages in Romans and what I was reading. There's a tremendous contrast between the two. The book, The Shack, is very engaging. It is a winsome book. It talks about a man who has had some deep hurts in his life and how he deals with that in this weekend encounter he has with God. But it also has some very misleading statements in it about God, about who he is and about how he looks at sin. The author will make statements coming out of God's mouth in that book, uh, things like this, that... um, God says that I don't punish anyone for sin. Sin is its own punishment. 
Uh, there's a climactic point in the book where this man is placed on a, a witness stand, if you will, and he's asked to be the judge. And he's asked, you know, you have five children, and I want you to decide there's only two that can go to heaven, and there's three that have to go to hell. And you have to decide which two of your children are going to go to heaven and which three are going to go to hell. And he goes, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. I, I'd rather that I would go to hell in place of them. And then God says to him, basically, that now you're starting to sound more like Jesus. I love all my children. As though there are no consequences for sin and no one goes to hell. The author of that book, Paul Young, indeed has had some deep hurts in his own life. He's a wounded person. And if you know his journey and you read the book, you'll understand that much of what he puts in the book is his own understanding to deal with his own wounds and pains and to be reconciled to God. But he's come to the point where he is a Christian universalist. He believes in Christ, but he believes ultimately that no one will go to hell and that all will be saved because God loves all of his children. Now you put that against the Scripture and you weigh those two things out and what does the Bible say about that? I, I think there's a lot of people in our world today who would like to just, you know, if you could do away with the doctrine of hell, you could do away with the doctrine of eternal punishment, or you could solve this problem of evil in our world. I'd like to believe in a God like that, they would say. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if this book uh, one day ends up on Oprah's list that she endorses as a book to read. But it's not the gospel. It's not what the Scripture says. And we need to be really discerning when we read books like that to understand the truth of what Scripture says. There is sin. And there are consequences for sin. And there is a way of salvation that God has provided through Christ. Let me take you back to that courtroom, if you will, as Paul pictures it here. The one where the judge is honest and fair and all the evidence is known. When we get there, there will be an evaluation of our life. And when it comes to the believer and the unbeliever, there are only these two possible verdicts. It's either eternal life or it's eternal death. It's heaven or it's hell. And there is no court of appeals. There's no reincarnation. There's no second chance. The scripture says in Hebrews 9.27 that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's the gospel truth. That man is destined to die once and then to face a judgment. And what we do in this life is very important. And how we respond to Christ and the way we respond to the gospel is critical. Have we come to that point where we are honest and we have seen our sin as God sees it, as an offense against the Holy God. And have we asked Him for His forgiveness and placed our faith in Christ, trusting in Him alone for our salvation? That's the Gospel invitation. Come to Christ. Come to Christ today. And if you have never done so before, I would urge you to do that. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, it is a call to live for Christ today. To serve Him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. To understand His grace and His mercy and forgiveness and to thank Him for that. And to rejoice in what He has done. 
to open our eyes to see His Son and to come to Him in salvation. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these things, they are sobering indeed. They remind us of what is ahead when we stand before You. And on that day, we will have no righteousness to claim of our own, but only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're not sure about that and you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven, I would urge you in the quietness of your heart to say that to God. God, would you forgive me, a sinner, for what I have done? And today I place my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I trust in you. I want to know you better. I want to follow your will for my life. And God will lead you and he will honor that prayer. And Jesus, thank you for the work that you have done on our behalf. Help us in the way that you have laid down your life for us. Help us to surrender our life to you and to live for you each and every day. We ask it in your name. Amen.